that is another song by Peter Gabriel titled We Do What We're Told, in parentheses, Milgrams 37. M-I-L-G-R-A-M, Milgrams 37. So it would probably be a good idea for you to know um, why the lyrics that's on the, the chorus, it just repeats over and over, and it says, we do what we're told. So it'd probably be cool for you to, to have an idea about why a song with the title Milgram in it would have the words, we're, we do what we're told in it. Um, it's one of these things that is covered well in the reading that I, I don't touch on really in the lecture. And this is the last audio lecture for the quarter. So, man, if you're cramming for an exam, you, you're probably listening to my voice on like three times speed right now, and you just hate the sound of my voice, and I, I accept that as true. We are getting close to the end here. Um, we're going to talk about clinical psychology in the mid-20th century and really, that's about where the history of psychology really stops. And, and by the typical historical method, actually needs to stop. Maybe at this point it would be the late 70s, mid, not the late, yeah, mid-late 70s we could get away with. Um, but here's what, I, here's what I'm trying to say. There's such a thing as hot history. When something occurs, usually the, the guideline is within the last 50 years, the idea is that we actually don't have enough time between the events, not enough time has passed for us to say what is the historical nature of this event? Will we consider it historically important at all? So when, when we're in, and that's not at all to say that things happening you know, now are not important or not significant. It's just we can't talk about them in, in, in an historical context yet because we don't know what that context is going to be. So, back to psychology, this means that we really stopped talking about things historically good 50, 50 years ago. And even 50 years is, is still kind of, it's not hot, but it's certainly warm. There's a quote from William James here. By the way, I need to say a couple things before we jump in. Um, you will be referring to the PowerPoint presentation posted on Canvas, not your notes for this. And this is another uh, lecture uh, designed with the help, uh, not just the help, she did most of the, the work, the foundational work, absolutely, Dr. Lauren Mueller. Um, who was my first TA for the course. The, the reason her name comes up a lot, I don't know if I've mentioned this, I, when I first taught this course, I was director of clinical training and we were having an APA site visit. So I was away a lot. And um, my, my teaching assistant at the time, Lauren Mueller jumped in and, and really did a great job with some of these topics. And I've felt fortunate to, to jump on over the years. So let's jump in. Back to the quote from William James. This represents very much where psychology was in the 20th century. The kind of psychology which could cure a case of melancholy or charm a chronic insane delusion away ought to certainly be preferred to the most seraphic insight into the nature of the soul. If you think about where we began at the beginning of this course, quite, really the course when we, we begin talking about the Greeks, there's certainly belief in the soul, but you start to have questions about the nature of, of the soul. 
and what is it and what is it not. By the 20th century, in the West, in psychology, there, are, there really are not questions uh, about the soul anymore in, in psychology. You know, we, the, the integrative folks are, are going to come along <laughs> and in, in the 70s, uh, beginning in the 70s, really, and, and try to cure that. But in, in psychology, we're not asking questions about the soul anymore at this point. And it's very much reflected in the models of the time, the clinical models the, the, and the research and so forth. So we are going to cover in this lecture behaviorism, psychoanalysis briefly. Um, I really should say, you know, contemporary psychoanalysis. I, my, my lecture previously covered mostly Sigmund Freud. Um, we're going to catch up psychoanalysis a, a little bit um, to the mid-20th century, mid-late 20th century. But just because so much of it is review, I'm really, I'm only going to talk about the, or emphasize really, the historical bits. Psychology during this time is becoming much more a discipline of application, not more than science, but it moves from being in its inception, um, really the, a heavy focus on, on science and experimentation, to now the umbrella is bigger and application, clinical work, assessment, that kind of thing is, is now considered a very legitimate part of psychology. So you can just kind of compare the APA preambles here. In 1892, it begins with to advance psychology as a science, period. Uh, in 1945, it changes to to advance psychology as a science, profession, and as a means of promoting human welfare. We're going to begin talking about mid-20th century psychology by talking about behaviorism, neo-behaviorism specifically. That's, that's what we're seeing by the mid-20th century. Builds on the foundation of Watson, Pavlov, Thorndike, all those guys, um, with some methodological changes, some ideological changes in, in a few different directions specifically two different directions that I'll, that I'll talk about. So the unifying assumptions of neo-behaviorists, data derived from animal learning is applicable to human learning. So remember, I don't know if you remember that um, when we were talking about uh, the, the concern over anthropomorphism, you don't really see that with neo-behaviorism. They're, they're fine to do comparative psychology with animals. An explanatory system to account for all learning data is possible objective measure of behavior is possible, and psychology should be the study of behavior and conditioning, not mental life, not the mind, and that will become increasingly clear. Edward Tolman earned his PhD at Harvard under Holt, wrote Purpose of Behavior in Animals and Men, and this is a significant field and significant change in the field of learning. Behaviorism and learning have always um, had a very, very strong relationship. We, when we think about learning now, we think m more of cognitive psychology in general, but behaviorism has always had a strong learning component to it. One of the things that Tolman adds that, that Skinner will not appreciate later on uh, is, is a change to, to Watson's model. So, and this is a good place to, to take a, to reference the, um, the PowerPoint, it illustrates it just a little bit. So Watson put forth, puts forth this stimulus response model, right? The S arrow R. 
Tolman promotes an S arrow O arrow R, an S O R model. And the O is the intervening cognitive variable. So this is actually moved more towards cognitive behavioral psychology. Tolman still respects the objective nature of, of behaviorism. Um, but adds this cog cognitive part. He um, comes up with the concept of cognitive maps, which is a, a very useful concept. It's, it's useful in a number of ways. It's, it's, oh, let me describe it a little bit first. So I want you to, wherever you're sitting or wherever you are right now, um, let's say you're home. Okay, let, let me start over. Say you're at home and you are sitting on your bed. I want you to go from your bed uh, to wherever you pick up your mail, okay? Now, in your head, you had a map of how to do this, and that's a really, really simple example. Um, one of the th fun things that, that I usually do in class with this is that I ask people um, how to get different places, you know, near campus, um, and, and one year I got a very thorough description of the inside of Target that was just amazing, very impressive, and, and those are cognitive maps. So now I'm, I'm explaining them in, in a sense where it's closer to a literal map, something with directions, but we have cognitive maps for all kinds of things, for all, a whole range of behaviors and, and situations. And so this is more of a holistic guide of behavior rather than just kind of the, the more component parts of the more you know, reductionist approach to behavior. Clark Hall experienced poor health as a child and lost his religious beliefs as an adolescent. Uh, he was inspired by Newton and, like a lot of behaviorists, very reductionistic, and he reduces almost every aspect of human existence to mechanical terms. Clark Hall came up with something, he came up with something <laughs> that sounds a lot like a lot of, of other models that we talked about. So. It's a, I'm a little suspicious in, in terms of Hull's attributions here. It's something he called, but he, he applies it to learning, drive reduction theory of learning. And this is very similar to even psychoanalysis, um, a, a few types of psychoanalysis and, and other, form, other models uh, of psychology. So an organism's goal is to adapt to the environment and when that organism experiences deprivation of need, the drive to reduce threat is initiated, and this is what motivates behavior for Hall. And then there are intervening variables like you know, habit strength, how strong a habit, how strong a behavior is, drive, and reaction potential. And the value of the intervening variable determines output response behavior. And this can all be mathematically represented and, and, and um, measured. Excuse me. This is something that's very important to the behaviorists throughout, is that something can be measured and mathematically represented. If you, you ever look at, you know, some behaviors journal articles, you're going to see a lot of charts, a lot of illustrations that, that I mean, you do that in, in any empirical study, of course, but behaviors like to, to have mathematical representational models. Now we move to the man that when people think about behaviorism, they're most likely to think of him, B.F. Skinner. Skinner is easily one of the most influential figures in the development of psychology, especially as, a, as the formal discipline uh, of psychology. Um, it's hard to find somebody who's had more, more influence. Certainly, you can put Freud up there next to him. Um, 
But even when you, you look at people like William James or, or G. Stanley Hall um, or Kurt Lewin, you know, people like that, they, they just didn't have the, nobody, you know, very few people ever have the impact that B.F. Skinner did. Um, and why he had that impact, we could talk about quite a bit, and we will, we will. <laughs> Let's just jump into it here. Uh, Skinner started off as an English major at Hamilton College. That's relevant because he aspires to be a writer, and he, but he changes career paths. And but but those writing aspirations tend to show up repeatedly in, in his career, as we'll see. He was influenced by the work of Bacon, Darwin, Thorndike, Pavlov, and Watson, of course. Skinner was a proponent of radical behaviorism. Radical behaviorism removes any intervening variables. There is no O between the S and the R for, for B.F. Skinner. So psychology's two main goals should be prediction of behavior and control of behavior. And you focus on overt behavior. You don't even focus on, on physiology, and there's no interest in cognitive or mediating factors. Um, if you are a cognitive behavioral therapist, B.F. Skinner does not appreciate you because of the cognitive part. If you are somebody who's into neuroscience, B.F. Skinner doesn't appreciate you because you're looking at physiology. You can't do that. Um, we can't, and this is a point I actually kind of agree with him on a bit. Um, I think Skinner would, would look at the neuroscience work today and say, you actually have no idea why that's doing what it's doing. You can't explain it. It's not really observable. What we can observe is, is behavior. Um, and so that, and I'm, I'm illustrating these, I'm saying these points to illustrate, excuse me, saying these points to illustrate, there is really a difference with Skinner and the behaviorism is indeed radical in nature and, and that's different. Skinner wrote the experimental analysis of behavior and he talks about operant conditioning, which this is something that should be very familiar to all of you, just that, that behavior that is positively in re reinforced. You should, you should understand that, all, all of that. I'm assuming you do, but please, it's, it's in your reading, so, so brush up on it and if you need to. It's a Darwinian understanding as well that behavior, you know, behavior is kind of parallel to random variation in species. You get these, in Darwinian theory, in natural selection, you get these, these random mutations. The mutations that contribute to the survival of the species are the ones that survive. Skinner's applying this to behavior, that basically we generate random behaviors all the time. The ones that are more reinforcing are the ones that, that we tend to stick with. Skinner, also not a fan of the naturalistic method at all. He, he is definitely on the, the hard empirical side of behavior, I mean, excuse me, experimental control, because he thinks behavior, behavior can only be explained when the investigator can identify and control all the influences. And that, that model of experimental method is, is all but assumed now when people are designing an experimental, um, an empirical experiment. So Skinner believes psychologists have a right and to influence and improve people's lives. Um, and I'm going to give you a couple examples of that. But he, he writes this book. Remember, he's got this aspiration to be a, a writer. It calls it Walden II, um, after Robert Frost Walden. And it's about, it's about a society that, it's about a utopia uh, designed through behaviorism. 
1971, he writes Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And the title is appropriate because he's saying, first of all, stop denying that you have free will. Yeah, if you're, in a free, if you're a free will fan, Skinner doesn't appreciate you either. Uh, because Skinner doesn't believe in free will. He doesn't believe in will. He believes in behavioral reinforcement. And so the closest thing you're going to get to free will is I, being able to understand and identify why you behave the way that you do and, and hopefully choose to, to have a different behavior or have somebody else help you change your behavior. So in that sense, behaviorism is every bit as deterministic as psychoanalysis. And it's interesting when, I, when I'm talking in class, sometimes we're talking about, like, especially my first year courses, different models. Um, you know, and I'll ask people about, you, you've probably had the class before at this point, you know what I'm talking about. But, you know, which, which ideas fit with which models. And a lot of people think that behaviorism is a free will model. Um, and I think that's because it actually, one of the goals is control of behavior. Uh, that, and that could sound like then you would have more freedom in life. But behaviorism is a highly deterministic model. So I want to talk about a couple examples of how Skinner wanted to apply this behaviorism. He had this project called the Air Crib. And if you, you jump ahead in the, the PowerPoint, you'll see a picture of it. And if you think it looks weird and a little bit frightening, you're not alone. That was the reaction to it. But that wasn't Skinner's intention at all. Skinner designs um, this crib where basically you can control everything in the baby's environment. Um, and the idea, a lot of people look at that, it's like, okay, you're just trapping your baby in there. That's not what Skinner thought at all. Um, although I absolutely see why people look at that and, and thought that way. But the idea was you could provide um, comfort, warmth, and all these different kinds of reinforcement. There, it wasn't a punishment or torture chamber for the baby. It was actually designed to provide a range of, of really nice and creative reinforcements. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's actually, the concept on paper is, is nice. And, and Skinner, this was going to be his big commercial success in his mind, that he was going to design this thing and it was just going to, it was going to change culture. And it did not. Um, the, the pictures of this thing came out and everybody's like, I am not putting my baby in there. And so, I don't know. Um, Skinner might have needed to have some design consultants next time, make it maybe a little more warm and fuzzy looking um, because the man's intentions were, were pure. They really were. Um, there was a military project. Then this is just an example of how behaviorism even, you know, influences combat. Uh, basically, and this is, this is not a nice story if you're a pigeon fan, um, but you train pigeons uh, to look through a little get glass sight, uh, a glass sight meaning there's you know there's there's like a cross in the middle of it for targeting, and you basically through manipulating this and putting pictures of your targets, you you teach the pigeon through a series of feeding it and 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 so forth operant conditioning um, to peck at the target, um, to peck at the desired target. Uh, and therefore help to guide the, the missile toward the project. Now, fortunately, this is a pro it, it fortunately didn't work super well, and so don't worry. There are not a bunch of little birds out there and rockets as, as far as I know. 
But Skinner was very much, and this is part of what Walden too is about. Skinner was very much in favor of the scientific construction of society and culture. Um, because, like I said, part of the problem is that we are, our behavior is determined, but we believe that we're free. And the American idea of freedom is consumerism, that, that I am free to buy all these things, when really it's just a very long sequence of reinforced behaviors that actually trap us. Skinner is definitely on to, to something here, whether you agree with all of his conclusions and causes or not. And so part of what the book Beyond Freedom and Dignity is emphasizing is that we have to give up our illusions of the, of freedom. No, or just acknowledge, no, there are a lot of things that control me. And by dignity, stop acting like you're not an animal. Um, you don't have a soul. <laughs> you're just a, a more complicated animal. And the behavioral, the behavioral motivations and, and explanations are still are the same for humans as they are for animals. Um, something that the humanistic folks we talked about last time would not appreciate at all. So right now, I would like you to head toward the Canvas page and, and toward, toward the video that I have of B.F. Skinner's APA 1990 address. Let me tell you a little bit about it first. This is Skinner's, this isn't only Skinner's last keynote or last speech ever. Uh, I think if I'm remembering correctly, he gave it 11 days uh, before he passes away. And one of the things that she'll notice in the speech is an almost evangelical passion and determination about behaviorism. You almost get the sense, and of course I'm projecting a, a mountain of stuff on here. Hindsight is, you can play with it. Um, but it is almost as if he knows this is one of his last chances to spread the behavioral gospel because the 90s is when really you see CBT starting to come in full force. Cognitive psychology is, is getting a resurgence. And this really bothered Skinner. And as you see, you will see, he makes it very, very clear that, that he thinks cognitive psychology uh, should not get the focus of psychology as a discipline. So even if you're somewhere where you can't look at a screen, you really just need the audio for this. So I would encourage you to listen to it right now and then come back. Now we're going to move on to talking about counseling psychology. Counseling psychology is not something I knew much about until, until you know, I'd been through grad school and then been in my career a little bit and actually met um, some counseling psychologists. It's something that in clinical psychology we just we don't talk much about because ultimately what they do is very different. And as with everything, there are historical reasons that counseling psychology is different. Let's start off with, with some of the context, though, for counseling psychology. In the early 1900s, the world starts to change, and the center of that change in the West is, is in the United States. Um, so there's a sequence of things that happen. First of all, you got urbanization. With factories, there's work in urban areas, um, often more work than there is now in, you know, in that farms, that kind of thing. So 
the important thing to remember is that you just see this massive influx of people into the cities and you've got immigrants coming in and then they largely live in, in their, their own communities in cities. Now, education up to this point uh, had been very decentralized and unregulated. So it was more like, you know, if a community would get put a schoolhouse <laughs> together, you know, in your, your little community. Watch Little House on the Prairie. That's what it was like. I'm not kidding. My parents went to school in a one-room schoolhouse where all the grades were together. It's something that was very community-based. But now, one of the things that, that happens is that you have all these families living in cities, and everybody's going to work, and you've got kids just left there. Sometimes the mom's home is home with them if she is not if she's not working. And so you start having these 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 urban living, urban life problems all of a sudden. And you've got all of these poor and uneducated individuals living in these urban centers. So progressives in the child saving movement strove to protect these new generations from poverty, exploitation, and neglect. If you want an idea what this was like, um, read Urban Sinclair's The Jungle. That it, it, it's not it's not for the squeamish. Okay, there's there's some stuff about a sausage factory in there that yeah, a lot of a lot of folks well, well nobody likes it, but it's it's hard to read. But it, it does accurately describe what life was like in in this era. So. You've got all these social ills emerging, and progressives, the the clergy, and psychology says, you know, we need to step in and do something uh, about this. Also, I forgot about the Great Depression, right? 1929. In, in addition to all of the other problems, now we suddenly have massive unemployment. So a few things happen. First of all, compulsory schooling becomes law. It was not, a, a public education was not always available and it, and it wasn't, it certainly wasn't required. It was fine for kids not to go to school most of the time. Uh, that changes and, it, and it's, and part of the thing that it does is it allows children um, to have something to do while their kids, are, are, well, excuse me, while their parents uh, are at work. With urbanization, with the sort of standardization of a lot of jobs in factories and so forth, uh, counseling psychology begins to focus on vocation and education. Frank Parsons emphasized the importance of choosing one's life work, and he begins, begins providing vocational guidance at Boston Civic Center, Civic Service House, excuse me. He suggested a triadic formulation for individual guidance, knowledge of oneself, knowledge of occupations, and knowledge of the relationship between the two. Jesse Davis said that vocational guidance should also involve moral development of the student, and Brewer argued for a more experiential uh, approach, trying, trying out different things. So one of the questions with counseling psychology has always been, is it, does it fall under the discipline of psychology or education? Psychologists believed that vocational guidance was their domain primarily because of psychology's emphasis on assessment. So one of the, the big things, and if you've ever done any vocational, like received any vocational counseling, or done it of course, um, you know that assessment is a big part of it. Um, the Strong Campbell, you know, that, that, a whole range of vocational tests that I know nothing about. But assessment's a, a big part of it. Educators argue, though, that guidance is part of the educational experience, and, and they have a point. 
Um, part of the thing about counseling psychology is it involves counseling. Counseling, one of the ways you can distinguish counseling from psychotherapy is counseling is, is not even just directive. You tell people what to do. You give them information that that they they don't have otherwise. That's that's a, a way to understand counseling. We certainly do that certainly do that in psychotherapy all the time, but that's more of a given in, in counseling psychology. So guidance of that kind is more under the purview of, of education. And education wins this one ultimately. And that's why counseling psychologists have an EDD instead of a PsyD or a PhD. And so schools become the setting for vocational guidance. World War II increases the need for mental health treatment and general counseling and guidance. Remember the, the GI Bill? You've got all these, these folks coming out of the service and now going to college. This also, this also increases the number of women in college because there are certainly women that served. And you've got all of these people going to college. College becomes more co-educational. <laughs> I'm not even talking about co-educational learning. Before, before the, the 20th century, um, with some uh, exceptions, but before the 20th century, largely men and women, boys and girls, went to school apart. They started going to school together, well, it was just off to the races. All kinds of interesting things happened, and not even the obvious ones, and I'm not being sexual here. But that's just a whole, if you're, you're curious about the history of education, the history of co-education is really a, a significant moment. But back to World War II. Um, psychotherapy becomes the domain of applied psychologists in the, in the military and the Veterans Administration provides funding and structure for training in psychotherapy as well as counseling. VA, as we all know, is not a perfect system, but it has an, such an important role in the history of, of psychology uh, because, and again, we go back to a funding issue. Um, and it really does, if you think of it even now, there's so much of it has to do with funding. Um, one of the reasons a lot of our students like to work at the VA, of course, they want to they want to serve our veterans. That's that's the main motivation. But the work is stable because the work is funded, and this has always been important in the history of of psychology, history of any discipline. The Northwestern Conference in 1951 distinguishes counseling psychology from clinical psychology, uh, and this is another good way to to distinguish the two. Counseling psychologists spend, quote, the bulk of their time with individuals in the normal range, meaning counseling, counseling psychology is going to apply to a broader range of people. Uh, clinical psychology is going to be more focused on, on psychopathology. So counseling psychologists further define the scope of their practice at the Grayston Conference in 1964. Uh, in the 60s, the humanistic, humanistic perspective in psychology, I mean, excuse me, in counseling psychology grows rapidly. And it, it very much fits, right, with this desire for self-knowledge um, and, you know, and, and development becomes a big emphasis in counseling psychology. You can see why that would be important. So it's not what we do uh, in clinical psychology. Uh, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of overlap, but there are some important differences. So maybe try and remember what some of those, those key differences are. Psychoanalysis, oh my gosh, we're talking about psychoanalysis again. Uh, we're talking about uh, 20th century psychoanalysis. Uh, you, we've been over this in my courses. I, I went over it a little bit in another lecture. So as I said, I'm, I'm gonna emphasize the historical parts. Make sure though you go over the 
the notes and you know the theoretical aspects, excuse me, go over the PowerPoint specifically. You know, make sure you know the theoretical aspects. I'm sorry, I'm having issues at the moment. Know the theoretical aspects, um, but it should be review and it should be stuff that you retain easily at this point. So in the 20th century, as theories of Freud, Hume, and Adler start to gain popular recognition, there's more demand for training and psychoanalysis grows. This is where things take an interesting turn, especially in the United States. And, and, I, and it actually, I'm going to spend a second talking about this because it'll actually illuminate some of the, I don't know if controversy is the right word at this point, but certainly distinctions, different directions of cognitive behavioral therapy and, and psychoanalysis. So in Europe, um, psycho, the, the psychoanalytic community is very inclusive. They will take anybody from any discipline. Um, psychoanalysis is certainly, the community is certainly in Europe, is certainly more inclusive um, than, than you know, academia, for example. In the United States, things are a little bit different. Uh, in the United States, psychiatrists want psychoanalysis to be strictly the purview of psychiatrists. Again, this is not like this in Europe. You know, this social workers, psychologists, that you know, nobody cares. It's just yes, come one, come one, come all. But in the United States, the psychiatry is saying, no, we're going to be the analysts. And there, for a long time, there is actually, in, in the United States, there's a requirement that you have to have a medical degree to be a psychoanalyst. Well, and of course, this this irritates the entire <laughs> psychologist community. So what you get in the mid-20th century is this conflict, rivalry, if you will, between psychology and psychiatry. And because psychiatry is basically saying, we're not going to let you be psychoanalysts, um, what you get in psychology is like, okay, well, we're going to go do something different then. And we're going to go research it at our universities. And psychoanalysts have never been, they, they like their case studies, but they don't like people coming in and measuring their clients, and they're like, okay. And so you get this one direction of cognitive behavioral therapy and this empirical approach, another direction with psychoanalysis, and, and a more case study, more theoretical, more naturalistic approach. So you've got all, I just, I just like to add that in there just to give some context for some of what we see going on even now. Psychoanalysis remains the, the domain of medical doctors until World War II, and then World War II democratizes the process a little bit. Um, the Nazi regime in Germany and Europe prohibited psychoanalysis, and this forces, of course, uh, you know, all the psychoanalysts to, to immigrate to other countries. And this new, and you, you have this expansion, and you of, and you have a new population of clients, and this leads to a broadening and deepening of theory. And again, this is something that's actually you'll see in a couple of ways is directly connected to to World War II. So ego psychology. This is review. I'm not going to talk a lot about that. Just know that it's really begun by Anna Freud and. Eric Erickson is often affiliated in his psychosocial stages of development that we've already talked about. In addition to being, you know, often lumped in 
with cognitive development folks. He's also claimed by, by psychoanalysis as well. Because his psychosocial stages are really considered in psychoanalysis to be an update and extension of Freud's psychosexual stages. Then in the 1960s, we have Heinz Kohut's self-psychology becoming popular. And then object relations. So the term object originally appears in Freud's work, but the role was considered limited and, and secondary. And so really Melanie Klein and W.R.D. Fairbairn develop object relations theory. Um, Klein and Fairbairn series developed rather independently uh, of one another, and you can certainly see that in the work because they're very different. So I want to talk a little bit about Melanie Klein. Again, the, the theory, you guys should know by now uh, the basics of the theory, and I'm certainly not going to ask you about more than the basics. Like Freud, she's born in Vienna. She's a mother to, th to three children. She's analyzed and mentored by Ferenzi and Abraham. She is the first to do psychoanalysis with children in 1919. She moves to London in 1926, as many of her colleagues did, and she viewed her work as an expansion of Freudian orthodoxy. Melanie Klein didn't consider herself Kleinian. <laughs> she considered herself Freudian. Um, and this is what you see, actually, in, um, you know, someone who's a diehard Kleinian. It's they, they, they see the, the Kleinian model as an extension of the classic psychoanalytic model. And so they'll often talk about them inter interchangeably. Klein brings an emphasis to the mother-child relationship, the mother-infant dyad, that cannot be understated. It, it just really, and not that Freud didn't emphasize this a bit, but Melanie Klein takes a deep dive that changes the way that everybody thought, um, and everybody still thinks, uh, about the role of the mother-infant dyad. And all developmental research, even stuff that's not explicitly psychoanalytic, is, is certainly influenced by this. Another influential idea is talking about the fantasy life of the infant. This isn't really something that had been considered uh, before. And, and so you've got this fantasy life, but a it's, it's protected by a very fragile ego that primitive ego might be a better way to put it. It's one that splits to manage anxiety. And then that's where you get the good mom, the bad mom, the good breast, the bad breast, um, splitting and whole or partial objects. And I'm going through these quickly because we've talked about them before. And it's, there's more in your reading. It's easy, easy to find out more if you're curious, if you need a refresher. And, of course, the, the very famous and influential paranoid and schizoid depressive positions. Um, critics were say the model is too speculative, too focused on the primitive fantasy material that really we can't know anything about. And the theory is too loosely organized. I, I actually am agreeing less and less with the critics um, as, as I get older. I don't know that age has anything to do with it, but I'm, I'm agreeing with them less and less that just because there, there's so many aspects of, of Kleinian theory that really seem applicable to development, to psychotherapy, uh, to relationships, and so forth. So I'm people hear me be snarky about Melanie Klein. I'm actually very, very grateful and appreciative of Klein and her work. Contemporary of Klein's Fairbairn, and he is another central figure in the development of object relations theory um, and is also considered sort of a, a progenitor of relational psychoanalysis. 
Fairbairn, like Winnicott, is Scottish. And so in, in that time, you know, Klein's in London, he's in Scotland, and, and they're not really communicating with each other. Um, Fairbairn takes a greater departure um, from Freud. Uh, he worked with schizoid patients, and that was really influential in his theory and about relationships and about what healthy relationships need. A lot of times you can learn about health by, by looking at dysfunction. He decides that the libido is object-seeking, and this is, this is a big distinction from Klein, actually. And again, I'm not going to get too much into the theory, but you should know it by now. But for Klein and for Freud, the libido seeks pleasure. The libido seeks satisfaction. Klein adds the object in as the source of satisfaction. Fairbairn and Winnicott came, come along and say, no, the libido actually just wants the object itself. Not, not, the, not just because there's pleasure coming from it. This is a huge change, uh, and it's an important change, and it actually makes sense of a lot of things, because <laughs> um, in relationships, the primary object does not always give pleasure. Sometimes the primary object gives pain, but you will see something Fairbairn called repetition compulsion, where the, the person will keep going back to the object, keep going back to the relationship, even if it causes them pain. And so this helps Fairbairn make the argument that the libido is actually seeking an object. It's not seeking, it's not based on, it's not seeking pleasure. It's not rooted in the pleasure principle as classic psychoanalysis and Kleinian psychoanalysis maintain. Now we get to Winnicott, also Scottish. Um, he was analyzed by James Strachey. He completed his training at the British Psychoanalytic Society. And at this point, things are splintered between Freudians and Kleinians, and Winnicott aligns with what comes to be called the middle group, which really sets the, the it's, a, it's a British object relations um, group that really is, is creating a path toward relational psychoanalysis. Winnicott was a pediatrician and a child analyst like Klein and like Anna Freud. He worked with children evacuated from England cities during World War II. World War II creates all of these unique research opportunities. I mentioned this before. Um, just because suddenly all of these children um, are orphaned for a variety of reasons, some of them temporarily, but then all of this, this work needs to be done with children and all, all of this research can be done with children at the same time. Winnicott becomes convinced of the importance of behavior and state of mind of the mother in healthy development of the child. And again, this is a huge contribution. Um, understanding that the baby is inherently part of a relationship and the mother can have an effect. And this separates him from the Kleinians and the Freudians. So some of the very well-known concepts Winnicott comes up with, transitional object, false self, holding environment, good enough mother. I'm not going to expect you to know any of those thoroughly. Um, just know that they're associated with, with Winnicott. You also need to know about Eric Fromm because Eric Fromm does not get enough attention. Uh, Eric, if, if you like psychoanalysis and you like social justice, then, then you need to read Eric Fromm. Uh, he was born in Germany and, and into a Jewish family. And of course, he is profoundly affected by the experiences of World War II. 
and just sees the irrationality of human masses. I mean, can you imagine just if you're, if you're Jewish in Germany um, during the Nazi era, the things that you see, the irrationality of the masses indeed. He's very influenced by Sigmund Freud, but he's also influenced by Mark. Uh, Mark, <laughs> a guy named Mark. He's always influenced by Freud and Marx. I guess I'm getting a little tired too in all this. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, I could make more jokes about this, but that, that just would waste your time. Okay. So <laughs> he's interested in political and cultural issues and their impact on personality. Fromm is going, he's getting ahead of a lot of people and saying, hey, it's, it's not just the internal world. You actually have to look at the political and cultural and social reality around someone and understand how that will affect development as well. And it can cause certain personality traits, certain defenses. It's not all about the libido. It's not all about the drives. It's not all about just defense mechanisms. Sometimes you actually have to defend against something that is real coming from outside, and that's going to affect your personality. Fromm offers this kind of narrative approach of cultural and historical context to cultural and historical context in one's own inner life. And so, again, you're not understanding your inner life just in terms of your parents and, and the, the mother-infant dyad, but also understanding it in terms of history, in terms of the culture you're in, things that came before you, just like this course, um, and you know how they change and affect and shape the way that you, not just that you see the world, but actually the way your personality developments, as I said. He is also very, very different from other psychoanalysts, from behaviorists, from basically everybody we've talked about in this lecture, because he sees freedom as the central characteristic of human nature. But we try to actually escape its consequences in one of three ways. Authoritarianism, whether we are inflicting it or just falling under it. Destructiveness, which is this, this kind of aggressive hopelessness. Or conformity. And so Eric Fromm is an important figure in humanism in addition to psychoanalysis. I, I wish I had more time to talk about Fromm. I wish I knew more about Fromm. But again, if you're someone who's interested in social justice, interested in systemic oppression and psychoanalysis, then I, I absolutely recommend that you read some more from. So what are the values of mid-20th century psychology? One value is social control. Behaviorism and then eventually humanism have the goal of not just, not just scientific discovery, not just treating psychological symptoms, but creating a better society. And Walden 2 is an example of that. Walden 2 is uh, about a behaviorist utopia. There's some backlash against this uh, at the time. Uh, a guy named Aldous Huxley writes a book called Brave New World that basically describes a dystopia <laughs> that is created by taking infants at birth and training them behaviorally to you know, fulfill certain roles. And so he talks about that there could be a dark future associated with this. That's not what Skinner had in mind. That's not what Rogers or Maslow or Abraham had in mind necessarily. But you, you can see Aldous Huxley's point that this stuff could be used in ways that psychologists didn't anticipate. The other value that emerges is the cult of the self. And we have all been influenced by this in some way or another. If you made a decision to come to Fuller, uh, if you, excuse me, if you made a decision to pursue a career as a psychologist, then you've been influenced by the cult of the self. 
because that means that you didn't come from a family of psychologists who, from the time you were born, said, hey, you're going to be a psychologist too. No, there was there was there were individual considerations. Um, though even the notion of a personal calling, part of the cult of the self, the whole idea that God works with me as an individual, and then in turn, psychology, my psychology is important to my individual growth. And so this is really a, a big a big shift from from past more collectivistic models of psychology in the West and, and the East. And you see there's some examples like shift in language you, you, to more amoral language. Instead of talking about somebody's character, we'll talk about their personality. Instead of self-sacrifice, talk about self-actualization, talk about self-realization. And so most of us, um, you know, me and, and all of you listening, we're too young to actually know, and even probably our grandparents a lot of times are too young to know what it was like before the cult of the self, but it's made a huge difference in how people think about life, how people think about their values. The 60s and 70s challenge a lot of these modernistic values. This is really where you have postmodernism coming along and more of an emphasis on plurality, diversity. There's no longer just, you know, one source of authority, whether that's science or the church. So a few things that come out of that. One is challenging the disease model um, in the sense that let's not just look at this as that mental health is always about individual psychopathology. Sometimes we need to critique culture. Sometimes we need to look at systemic oppression and say, you know, somebody's anxious or depressed or paranoid, not because they're mentally ill, but because they live in an environment that creates those symptoms for them. And so at least this questioning of psychology's values, is it just about symptom remission? Is it about controlling people? Or is it about actually looking at the negative things that control people and changing society and promoting social justice. The sexual revolution and feminism go right along with that and they upend culture in ways that we are still sorting out. You did it. You're done. You don't have to listen to me anymore. Thank you so much for all your patience and all your hard work during this crazy time. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Take these shoes, click clacking down some dead end street. Take these shoes and make them fit. Take this shirt, polyester white trash made in nowhere. Take this shirt and make it. Yeah, what?
Break.